This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, everyone. Sean Kipe here. Due to the overwhelming number of calls, messages, and tips we've already received, we've decided to release the first six episodes today in their entirety for everyone. No premium subscriptions needed. We want everyone to be caught up and on the same page. My investigation is now happening live in real time. So stay tuned for new episodes in the coming weeks as we get closer and closer every day to finally getting justice for Rhonda. Karen Akar, Chris Holcomb with the weather, and Brad Bibb with sports. Middle Georgia's first choice in news. Coach in South Georgia bid an emotional goodbye today to a teenager found brutally murdered earlier this week. Funeral services were held this afternoon for Rhonda Coleman at a Baptist church in Hazelhurst. The 18-year-old was supposed to be with friends in graduation ceremonies next week, but instead today her family and friends gathered to say goodbye. 11 Alive's Renee Chenault is in Hazelhurst and joins us live now. And Renee, our police making... The community of Hazelhurst was reeling in the wake of Rhonda Coleman's murder. Time seemed to stand still. Family, friends, and strangers alike, it seemed, had still not processed the fact that this wasn't just a bad dream, a nightmare. It was real. And Rhonda really was gone. The town of Hazelhurst may not have been just mourning the death of one of its own, but also the end of an era. The era of leaving your doors unlocked and trusting everyone. Rhonda's funeral service was held at the Southside Baptist Church in Hazelhurst on a sunny Wednesday afternoon, just days after her body was found. Milton and Gail share little of what they remember of that day, and I don't press for more. Because I can feel the weight of the sadness come crashing down around them, and it didn't feel right to ask them to relive the worst day of their lives on my account. Truthfully, the day must have been somewhat of a blur to them. Very, very large turnout. Had it at Southside Church, the funeral, and we were standing room only. I mean, people outside couldn't even get into church. So many people there. Good evening, Lisa. We're coming to you across the street from the Southside Baptist Church in Hazelhurst, the site of today's funeral. The murder of Rhonda Sue Coleman has had a very big emotional impact on virtually every resident here in Jeff Davis County. And this afternoon, those emotions became evident at her funeral. Local residents filled the town's largest church as over 1,000 people turned out to mourn the loss of 18-year-old Rhonda Sue Coleman. The hearse carrying her body made its way up Cromarty Street towards the church. Her entire senior class served as honorary pallbearers for the service. 
Inside, tears were pouring down the faces of those in attendance as a student read aloud a poem Rhonda wrote last month. Rhonda's teacher and also a pastor spoke of how concerned Rhonda was for her friends and how she loved others and how others loved her. That love, he says, was shown this week by the black ribbons on local stores and the fact that all Hazelhurst's business closed for her funeral. Over one-third of the population of Hazelhurst attended Rhonda's funeral. Nearly every business closed for the day, and practically every door in town donned a black ribbon as a sign of mourning. Jeff Davis High School, along with local government buildings, flew their flags at half-mast in remembrance of Rhonda. Parts of the funeral service were even televised locally. At a packed funeral service, classmates and co-workers joined to mourn the untimely death of the student who was to graduate from high school in two weeks. She was remembered as a person who always put others first. Rhonda loved life. Rhonda was full of life. Rhonda loved people. Rhonda was surrounded by thousands of beautiful, fresh flowers, and a framed picture of her sat on top of the pearl-white casket adorned with bronze fittings. Darlene Jacobs remembers what a confusing, heartbreaking time this was. I mean, it was just a bad day for everybody that was there. If you've ever seen the pictures of that church, there was no room to put anybody else. And it is a big church. Um, I still attend church there, and it'll hold 650 people comfortably. But we have way, way more people in there than that. I mean, people came from everywhere. Well, Milton and Gil both have large families. Everybody knew them. And then you got all these kids from school. And so, yeah, it was a big to-do. Amidst a hushed silence, the body of 18-year-old Rhonda Sue Coleman was carried into Southside Baptist Church. The tears flowed freely for Rhonda Sue, for her unrealized dreams and lost potential. At times, the pain seemed too much to bear. The grief-stricken family of Rhonda Coleman gathered to bid a final farewell to the slain teenager, an outpouring of anguish and sorrow that is being shared by an entire community. In doorsteps of buildings everywhere around this small Georgia town, black ribbons hang as both a memorial to the popular teenager and a reminder that her killer is still on the loose. Investigators say the case is baffling. On Wednesday, May 23, 1990, Rhonda Sue Coleman was laid to rest at Satilla Free Will Baptist Church Cemetery in Hazelhurst. I watched some of the funeral service I had converted from an old VHS tape the Coleman family gave me. And like any funeral, it was filled with sorrow and heartache, tears and blank stares of confusion. What stuck out to me the most, other than the images of the completely grief-stricken Milton and Gale, who were so distraught they could barely walk without leaning on one another, were Rhonda's classmates. Just a few weeks before Rhonda's death, another classmate, Jason Wooten, had died in a car accident. This hit me hard because I'd actually lost someone the same way when I was in high school. A friend named Karis Hyrick, who I'd known since the third grade, was killed in a car accident when we were 17. She was the first person I'd ever known that had died, and she was our age, a kid. I remember the look on the faces of my classmates in the halls the day we heard the news. Even the kids that didn't know her struggled with these same emotions. It just felt so unnatural to bury a child like this. 
It goes against the natural order of things, especially under Rhonda's circumstance. And for many of her classmates, they weren't only losing two friends in a short period of time. Many of them were, for the first time, facing their own mortality. Tracy Slater was a friend of Rhonda's and attended the funeral. Um, Jason died on April 1st. And then um, when Rhonda died in May, and then when we graduated, they actually set seats for both of them and presented their parents their diplomas. And so not only did you go through both of the funerals, and then our graduation basically kind of was an extension of one. It was just so heavy and sad. But even as the funeral took place, the full-scale investigation continued. The GBI actually patrolled the parking lot and took pictures of cars looking for the tires that matched the plaster cast of the tracks taken from the abduction site. They took a copy of the guest book because they felt it was likely that since Rhonda almost certainly knew her killer, the person, or people, might be in attendance of the funeral. Meanwhile, the investigation into Rhonda's murder is continuing, as evidenced by several GBI agents who were taking pictures with home video cameras outside the church. Authorities say they have no firm suspects at this point, but they do say they have a number of leads to follow. Some students even heard rumors that there might be an arrest made at the funeral. But no such thing happened. The day ended as it began, in sadness. Rhonda really was gone. But something stuck with me, thinking about what had happened. Was there more than one person involved in Rhonda Coleman's death? And if so, who? Earlier, Milton had mentioned a man named John. And again, only using first names here to protect their privacy for now. But John, like Greg, was a few years older than Rhonda. And John's name came up in interviews with multiple sources I spoke with over the course of several months. Why? Both men would have been about 23 at the time. But unlike Greg, who really didn't have a bad reputation with most people, people told me John was aggressive and a bit of an outsider. He was a person of interest very early on in the investigation because he and Rhonda had a recent altercation. This was reported to the GBI and police by several of Rhonda's friends and family when the initial investigation began. The alleged confrontation was due to the fact that John was dating Rhonda's best friend, Treese, at the time, and was allegedly controlling and abusive to her, something Rhonda wouldn't stand for. And Gail Coleman remembers this. I'm sure they had words because she got in his face about, from what she would say, that he would actually slap, push, you know, knock Treese around. And Rhonda would get, get in his face. She did not like him. And I'm sure he didn't like Rhonda. Milton and Gale told me that the altercation between Rhonda and John were partly because Rhonda's senior class had planned a cruise to the Bahamas to take place shortly after graduation. And John was vehemently against Treese going. He was said to be jealous and controlling, too. This caused friction between John and Rhonda because she was trying to convince Treese to leave John and to go on the cruise. I've contacted Treese to get her take on this, but haven't gotten a response yet. The Colemans say that it's rare for her to talk about this part of her life. I did speak with Tracy Slater about this, though, and she knew about the confrontations between Rhonda and John. She also shares her insight on what John was like. You know the, the person that you see and you know him by name, but you don't know him because 
it's all he always just kind of was the person who never engaged in conversations never even when there was a group of people around he never participated in a conversation it was almost like he would be the person leaning against the, the vehicle just observing at, to the point that it made you uncomfortable very much so an outsider and to the point like it wasn't like a guy that you're seeing just check out some girl it wasn't that kind of staring it was you just always felt like he was I don't know and it, it, it just it made you uncomfortable it it was just odd why would there be a conflict between John and Rhonda well because Rhonda <laughs> and anybody would say this Rhonda was feisty and she she wasn't the person that was going to she wasn't going to mince words and if she thought it she was going to tell you and she told him exactly what she thought and that she thought he was controlling and that she thought that he was you know out of line and he, he didn't like that he wanted from my standpoint he wanted that control he wanted to be where he could isolate her I just think he was one of those people uh, I mean and of course as you grow up as adults you realize that but you're when you're a teenage kid you don't it all goes back to he was just very insecure and extremely jealous and it was jealous whether it was a guy whether it was a girl it didn't matter if they were taking her time he didn't like that if he if he couldn't be there he didn't like that I asked Tracy if she'd ever witnessed any of the abusive or aggressive behavior that others had told me about John. Um, now, Rhonda and I had talked about it. I personally never saw it myself, so I can't say that. Now, I have seen him verbally with one of his girlfriends, but I have never seen him physically. But I do know that Rhonda and Tree were very close, um, and I know that Rhonda had a lot of concerns. Could he really have been so jealous over something as petty as not wanting his girlfriend to go on a senior cruise? Could he really have had such an issue with Rhonda arguing with him about this to kill her? I'm continuing to pursue an on-the-record comment from Treese. Her knowledge of what happened is too important to ignore. But as for John, I want to know more about why he was named a person of interest from the start, other than the altercations with Rhonda he may have had. And it turns out, there is more. A lot more. From Imperative Entertainment, this is Fox Hunter. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about... How to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. I attended the uh, FBI National Academy in 1993. I was very fortunate to get to go from a small town to the National Academy and be a graduate there. That's retired Hazelhurst Police Chief Steve Land. He's worked closely over the years with the Coleman family and has played an integral role in keeping the investigation active as much as he can. We spoke through a series of interviews, and he shared with me his original notes from the investigation. 
I took death investigation as one of my courses, and I had obtained a copy of the GBI's full report and all the photographs of this case, and I took it to Quantico with me and presented it as my case study, and my whole class listened to me present the case. The class Steve Land took gave him an opportunity to present the case with not only his peers, but a room full of FBI investigators. They used their combined experience to pseudo-solve the case based on the information and evidence that Steve provided. I met up with Mr. Land when I made my second trip down to Hazelhurst from Atlanta in March, and we talked for several hours. I presented this to my death investigation class, just like a district attorney would, or to a grand jury. My class voted, said John did, did the crime. He had motive and opportunity. And from the evidence you presented here to the class, that's who we think did it. Steve Land was a part of the initial investigation and is very familiar with the case and the allegations. He was jealous. Rhonda had talked his girlfriend to going on the cruise with the senior class. And he says, no, she wasn't going. And Rhonda said to the friend, tell him you're going anyway. And allegedly that conversation got really volatile with him and the girlfriend. And one of the conversations was that he went to Rhonda and said, you will convince her not to go. And she told him to take a flying leap. Why was Rhonda going on the senior cruise such a big deal to John? And she worked at Piggly Wiggly. She dealt with a lot of folks. And And for those of you that don't know, Piggly Wiggly is a small chain of supermarkets in the South. Hey, it's a Southern thing. What more can I say? And, you know, there was allegations that he came in Piggly Wiggly and confronted her there on the job. And I don't know there was... I don't know if there was any follow-up to that or not. But that would be the motive, is jealousy with the girlfriend. Years later, he allegedly held a pair of scissors to the girlfriend's throat and threatened to kill her. And she did a taped interview with one of my officers. The officer that Steve is referring to is John Lee, and he tells me a bit about this incident. We were contacted, and I stopped him, and at that time I placed him under arrest and transporting him up there to uh, the office, to the police station, and interviewed him right in the jail itself. He tried to run her off the road. And, you know, I think, I think his intentions may very well have been to kill her. But there was no evidence to convict John of a crime because there were no witnesses. And he was released. So I had a VHS tape and I kept that in the evidence for years and years and years. Best I recall, one of the assistant district attorneys came to my office. It was either the assistant DA or the GBI and said, I want that VHS tape. It needs to go to the sheriff's office. I never heard another word out of it. John actually worked in the timber industry in 1990, and part of his job was helping to clear-cut trees. Clear-cutting is basically just what it sounds like. It's the practice in which all trees in an area are uniformly cut down to make way for planting select species of trees. They do this so that the trees will be even-aged and spaced when harvested up to 30 years later, and they'll get processed for any number of different products, paper, mulch, whatever. John's job was to go in after the clear cut and clean up all the small stuff. As it turns out, John had just a couple months prior clear cut the field where Rhonda's body was found. I've heard this from numerous sources, including the Coleman's, Steve Land, and former GBI agents that worked the case. I've been by there and talk about being off the beaten path. 
This place is in the middle of nowhere. There's really nothing around for miles, even today. Though in 1990, the field where rows of trees now exist would have been recently leveled. It's not a place you would just stumble upon, especially in the dark. And the, the prime suspect had cut timber in that area. He was familiar with where her body was located. Steve explains the very simple reason as to why this is key. Because criminals go to familiar territory. Criminals of certain types of crimes are likely to return to areas they're familiar with. If someone was to, say, need to dispose of a body, they would likely go to an area they know of that is secluded, where they may be able to easily hide a body. Since 2001, Kevin Boyer and Patrick Flynn at the University of Notre Dame's Computer Science and Engineering Department have been studying this very concept and working on image-based biometrics and facial recognition in part to catch criminals who return to the scene of the crime. It's that prevalent. Of course, this did us no good in 1990 or out in this secluded wooded area. Another piece of evidence was that John drove a, I believe it was a Chevrolet or GMC pickup truck and it had Tiger Paul tires on it. And there was a plaster cast taken at the scene where the body was located. And it was determined that that's the same kind of tires he had on his truck. And that was never followed through on. At one point, John's truck was seized by investigators, though nothing was found. I was told by a source that he had new tires put on by this point and that the Uniroyal Tiger Paws were destroyed or could not be found. This is extremely odd. Who destroys old tires when they get new ones? But here's what we know so far about John. He and Rhonda had been arguing about the senior crews. Because of his job, he knew the area, the fields where Rhonda's body was found, very well and the tires on his truck matched those of the plaster cast made at the abduction site. And Steve Land tells me another detail, too. Also, another element that was screwed up on the deal was he had a chainsaw and a can of gas in the back of his pickup truck. That, to my knowledge, that gas was never tested against what was on her body. The accelerant used to partially burn Rhonda's body was a mixture of gas and oil, which you would use for a variety of lawn maintenance products, like a leaf blower, a weed whacker, or a chainsaw. But investigators never compared the accelerant in the gas can in the bed of John's truck to that from Rhonda's burned body. And her body was not burned beyond recognition. I don't know if they, they told you that or not, but her body was slightly burned. It was not totally disfigurement. I think it was panic and uncertainty of, well, I'm going to try and get rid of the body, and, and they, they just threw a little on her and then set it on fire and took off in a panic. And it very well could have been accidental, and, and we've talked about that numerous times, and, and there's a great possibility, but knowing John had a temper like he had, it may not have been. This is just one of a number of leads that law enforcement has followed over so many years. But again, no arrests were ever made. The case is still open, with few new leads coming in. It starts out as, I want to get on to you about my girlfriend going on the cruise. I want you to do this, and it gets out of hand from there. He grabs her, and she's fighting. So what's he going to do? He's going to get reported, and he's going to get arrested. 
So he's, he's freaking out, and the more she fights, the tighter he's squeezing. So with positional asphyxiation, she eventually quits breathing. Though no official cause of death has ever been released to the public, several former law enforcement officials I spoke to said that it was either strangulation or positional asphyxia. Positional asphyxia occurs when someone's position prevents the person from breathing adequately. People may die from positional asphyxia accidentally, when the mouth and nose are blocked, or where the chest may be unable to fully expand. You could say suffocating someone, even if by accident. Well, then he panics, and where's he going to go? Wouldn't like you take him down in the swamp. It's like the pickup backed up there in a panic mode. We dump the body out, pour a little gas, set it on fire, and we take off. But those two people would have had to, they do what many criminals do, they panic. And, and first instinct is to go to real familiar territory. And then you get second guessing yourself, well, I better not do this here, go someplace else. Four years of experience, criminals go back to familiar territory. Every time I think, oh, that's the smoking gun, I realize that investigators looked into that maybe 20 or 30 years ago. As recently as 2018, the GBI started asking questions and interviewing people like Tracy Slater and Layla Miller again, but still no arrests. And as I got deeper into my investigation of John, I was also told that John's brother had been involved in a violent and abusive relationship with a woman. I spoke to that woman's sister, Tish. My sister just passed away last year from Alzheimer's, but she was married to one of his brothers, and he was a mean ass. All those brothers were known to be mean asses. Like, I saw his brother, who was older, because my sister broke up with him, come by. I mean, I was like in, I don't know, maybe in eighth grade, bust all her windows out in my mom's driveway, stick a gun down her throat in front of her kids. The eyewitness account of Tish's is burned into her brain. Though she was young at the time, it's something she'll never forget. And busted out all her windows stalker and everything like that yeah i mean just crazy shit yeah unfortunately she was married to him and she never wanted to talk about it one thing that my sister did tell me when ronda got when ronda died and we found out he was one of the suspects she said and his only alibi was his mama and my sister said tish their mom will lie for them to the day she dies Tish is right when she says that John's only alibi was that his mother said he was home asleep when Rhonda's abduction occurred. This was the alibi that numerous law officials confirmed they heard as well. What I was told was two weeks before Rhonda passed, he said that the reason why him and his girlfriend broke up was because of Rhonda Coleman and he would get the bitch back. But another part of this story that stands out to me is the cries for help that the fox hunters heard. Because it could have all turned around right there if the men had only acted that night. The fox hunters might have been the best hope for Rhonda if she indeed was the person they heard screaming. So what happened to them? I wanted to talk to these hunters, but unfortunately, all three of those men have since passed away. However, I was able to track down a nephew of one of them. Only thing that I'm telling you is what I what I know that was told to me, you know, not speculation. That's Zach Marchett. His uncle was Roger Marchett, who along with two other men were hunting fox not far from where Rhonda's car was found. 
There was only one lone dirt road that cut through that forested area. I can tell you that he, he told me he was fox hunting out on Henson Farm Road, and that's real close to where they had found her car at. And he said during that time, a truck rode by them on the road, and there was a female hollered, help, help. But he said, you know, at the time, I really didn't think that much about it because of kids being kids and do, do crazy stuff all the time. Well, the next day or two, whenever I found out she was missing, you know, it all kind of, where they found her car, it all kind of come back together. Just from what my uncle said, he, you know, he, he felt pretty confident that was her in the truck, but he, he didn't know that, you know, obviously he didn't know that. It just made, it made sense with the timeline of where he was at relationship to her vehicle when she went missing. And he talked to the GBI or the county sheriffs or whoever was in charge of that. I don't remember who it was. He, he even told me what color truck was, but I cannot remember for the sake of my soul what 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 color it was and what kind it was or anything, because I tried to. I mean, I really thought through this thing really hard trying to figure out why I couldn't remember, but at 31 years, I guess, or however long it's been. And that's a big part of the problem right there. It's been so long that the people who were in their 30s or 40s in 1990 are now well into their twilight years. Memories fade, facts get mixed up, names and dates get fuzzy, and people pass away. I I do remember, and this is, he said, she said, this is a dead man, you know, he's my uncle or whatever, but he he told me who he thought it was, and he thought it was John, and he, he swore to that to the day he died. He thought it was his truck. He told me the color of it, the make of it. But did Roger Marchant know John well enough to positively ID him as he drove by in his truck at night? Well, my uncle owned a feed store, so I'm sure that everybody had done business with him for buying dog feed or feeding seed, you know, that kind of stuff. I think he knowed of him, you know, in small towns like that, everybody kind of knowed everybody, you know. Sounds strange if you live in a metropolitan city, but growing up in a small town, roughly the size of Hazelhurst myself, I can say that that's really how it is, or was back then. Even Layla Miller mentioned that the kids would cruise the town's main drag and hang out at night. When you cruised by and saw someone's car you knew in a parking lot, you pulled in to hang out. I know this because I did it in high school. But as Zach and I keep talking about John, he surprised me when I asked him who he thought killed Rhonda. I'd probably have to lean to what my uncle said. I, w- I would put probably more belief in that. Than, now, did he probably do it by himself? Or was there somebody else? I'm sure. And and this guy's passed away also, but I'd say Mickey Beecher. You probably heard that name. Sure, I've heard that name. The flag painting party was at his house the night Rhonda disappeared. Zach Marchett is maybe the sixth person who's mentioned Mickey's name as someone they feel could be connected to Rhonda's death in some way. But not until Zach mentioned his name did I hear this. He, he had a big crush on her. Big crush. But it wasn't just Mickey Beecher, Zach says, who had a crush on Rhonda. Him, him and a guy, but Mickey Beecher and a guy, another guy, and I think he's still alive, his name's Shane. We had a class together, and yeah, they were, both of those guys were pretty obsessed with her. A crush is one thing, but obsessed? What does that mean? That's just a classmate looking in, you know what I'm saying, saying those other two names. Now, I'm just... And and, and both of them had a, a pretty bad drug problem, and one of them dead from it. So, you know, a lot of times they, they might have carried that to the grave with them. 
Maybe that's true. But one thing I do know for sure is that Greg and John are both still alive and well. And sooner or later, I'm going to have to find a way to talk to both of them. Fox Hunter is a production of Imperative Entertainment. It was created, written, and reported by me, Sean Kipe, and I wrote the original music score. Executive producers are Jason Hoke and Gino Falsetto. Story editor is Jason Hoke. Sound engineering by Shane Freeman. Key cover art provided by Joe Freeman Jr. Keychalis 9032, 2015. Fox Hunter is a 10-episode series available every Tuesday morning. Follow us on social media at Fox Hunter Podcast. If you like the show, leave us a review and tell your friends. Thanks for listening. The Bigger Pockets portfolio of podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to. Bigger Pockets on the market, rookie real estate or money podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.